some hot seats up here right in the front row. Good spot. I'll call on you. Tell them, man. You got it. I got it. I own that seat, man. Put my name on it. That's right. Hey, don't sit too close to my wife, man. Um, <laughs> kidding. Now it's super awkward. I'm going to sit in that chair. It's like, damn, man. Chair's taken, dude. Room for the Holy Spirit in there. Um, you know when you dance at camp with a girl, and you, that was our counselor said, you got to leave room for the Holy Spirit? You know, you got the hands here, a little bit of this. Um, that has nothing to do with anything, by the way. So if you're here for the first time, we're glad you're here. Honored. <laughs> Segway. Good at this. If you're here for the first time, we're glad you're here. We're actually in week five of a little mini-series, a little series that we've been kind of looking at as we explored five truths about the death of Jesus. And, and really the premise was, and I'm not going to backtrack to the whole thing, but the premise was that in order to understand the resurrection, in order to understand the life that was given to us through Christ, we had to understand the death of Jesus and what it meant. That, that the God of the universe, the God that created us, that made us, that breathed life into our very lungs, um, what took place when he died for us? What is the cross mean theologically and how does it get us to Easter? And so we've been really exploring those theological truths as we kind of anticipated the coming of Easter. And it's been a little bit deeper of a look than maybe we you know, might normally do, but I think it's incredibly important. We've, we've kind of looked at these five truths, right? We've looked at the first four. The first one was that the death of Jesus was for his enemies. We talked about how you and I are enemies of God. The Bible's very clear about it, that we are powerless and that we are ungodly and that we are sinful and that we deserve God's wrath but in his infinite love God did something different so we were enemies of God right truth number one truth number two the death of Jesus was on our behalf that you and I deserve to die for our powerless ungodly sinful state but God in his amazing kind of divine plan had this magnificent exchange this divine substitution that took place by in which he took our place where we were supposed to be and die for our sin, he sent his son Jesus. And it's the, the term there that we've talked about is penal substitutionary atonement, that God himself, the person of Christ, took our place. Therefore, we get the righteousness of God, and Jesus gets our sin. And we explored all that. It's truth number two. The truth, third truth was that the death of Jesus defines love. The book of 1 John tells us that we don't even have an understanding of what love is at all apart from the death of Christ. Like, that is the picture of love. And, and God gives us a demonstration of what that looks like through Christ, and we are called to replicate that. Not the act, <clears throat> but the sacrifice, right? And so we talked about that, the death of Jesus defines love. And then last week we explored the fourth truth, which is the death of Jesus reconciles us to God. We talked about how the word reconciliation means to bring back to harmony with. That God, through Christ's death on the cross, brought us back to harmony with him. And he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. And we talk about how we are ministers and what that means. And that we are ambassadors. And that we've been given this message of reconciliation. And we're called to fight for reconciliation around the world. For those to be people to be reconciled with God. And we explored all those things. Which brings us to our last truth this morning, which is this. The death of Jesus sets you free. <clears throat> now, as you've probably figured out by now... These truths are in, somewhat inter, interdependent. They, they connect with each other, and they're built upon each other. And so there's going to be some things that we're going to look at today that are, are going to kind of be familiar. And then there's a couple things that I want you to pay special attention to. But this is the truth by which all the others sort of lead us to, which is the death of Jesus sets us free. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be there, and then we, we're going to jump over to Romans 8, if I remember, um, at some point in time. So, but I'd like to be in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you've got it, let's go ahead and, uh, and get there. While you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us. Turn this morning over, completely over to the Lord. <clears throat> let's pray. 
God, I thank you that you uh, draw us into relationship with you. I thank you that you are infinitely perfect and amazing and we are not. Lord, I thank you that the truth is we deserve death. Um, we deserve eternal separation from you, God. We, we deserve spiritual death because of the sin in our life. But you and your great amazing love for us, as we're going to see this morning, have set us free from that. That you have set us uh, free. You have given us new life in Christ. God, you have exchanged our sin for your righteousness through Jesus' death on the cross. And God, that will never cease to amaze me, that that's how much you loved us. And so God, I pray that as we open your word today, you would make those truths real. God, that you would make some of these complicated things clear and that you would reveal yourself. So take just a moment and ask the Lord to just show you this morning what it means to truly be set free. Just whisper that. God, I just pray that you would show me this morning what it means to truly be set free. Take a moment and just pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, just around you somewhere. Just pray that God would uh, move in them. I say this each week, be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we commit this time to you. We ask that you would reveal truth to us from Scripture. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take that lightly. And so, God, we pray that you would teach our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read the, the whole, all ten verses. I was going to say the whole thing, but that would be not good. Let's read the, just the first ten verses of chapter. It would probably be good, but it wouldn't be, it would be long. Let's do uh, chapter 2, 1 through 10. So this is what, what Paul's saying to the church in Ephesus. <clears throat> He's saying, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. <clears throat> so there's really three things, uh, four things, three, but I made four, that I see in this text that I want us to pay special attention to because this truth is somewhat the culmination of all these others wrapped together. And there's going to be a piece that we're going to see that you're going to look at and go, man, that's completely obvious because of what we've been talking about all along, and, and I'm going to lift that out. But I really want you to pay special attention to the others because I think they're what's really powerful about this text, all right? So the death of Jesus, truth five, sets us free. Okay, so what does that mean? What does it set us free from? Well, this text actually outlines quite a few things. The first thing the death of Jesus sets us free from is the ways of the world. All right, look at those first two verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the kingdom of the ruler of the air, which is Satan, and all those who are at work and those that are, and he is at work and all those are disobedient. We followed our sinful 
cravings, trying to gratify those things, and we followed its desires. So we have been set free from the ways of the world, which kind of begs a question for me as I was looking at this, which is what does that really mean? Okay, so what are the ways of the world? We sort of can designate the, the, the sinful nature versus the godly nature or the life in the spirit, but what does that really mean when we say the ways of the world? What are we talking about? Well, I think it's, there's a couple of categories there. The first is he, he kind of applies is the cravings of our sinful nature. The death of Jesus sets us free from the desire to gratify ourselves. Now, we're told in culture all the time that this world is about me, right? It's about what I can get, about my desires. I've got to look out for myself. I've got to take care of my own. I have got to fight for me. We learn it in the corporate world. We learn it in the work world. We learn it at home. We tell our kids, you've got to stand up for yourself. The whole idea is that if I don't protect me, no one will. Well, that begins to translate into the desires of our heart. And the sinful nature that we have, because we've talked about our, uh, this over the past few weeks, we're enemies of God, we're sinners, we're powerless, we, we desire to gratify those things that are at work in our hearts. The sinful nature of us, we want to gratify those. We are about pleasing ourselves, right? And that comes in a lot of different forms, right? It can come, in, it can come morally, it can come in terms of, you know, power, it comes in lots of different ways. But one of the ways that we are inclined is to, do, is to be about self-gratification. Like, I want to please me. I'm going to do what feels right, right? We see this in culture all the time. You've got to do what feels right to you, right? We live in this sort of moral relativism that says if it's right for you, then it's okay. Truth is, it's part of our sinful nature that says this is about me. We apply it to how we even think about the church. We go to churches and we church shop based on what you have for me. Please me, right? And if you don't, I'm going to stomp around long enough to where I either threaten to leave or you create what I want because our culture is driven by this sort of craving to gratify what I want. The death of Jesus sets us free from that, right? Paul talks about it in this way in chapter 13 of Romans when he says, rather clothe yourself with Jesus Christ and not think about how to gratify the desires of sinful nature. The sinful nature is who we are, but Jesus died for us. We are called to clothe ourselves with his desires as opposed to the desire of ourselves. So we've been set free from the way of the world. We no longer are slaves to our sinful nature. We have been bought with a price and we are now slaves to Christ, which means his nature and his desires should be at the forefront heartbeat of our life saying, God, what do you want? What do you have for me? We ask me-centered questions all the time. God, where are you leading me? Where should I go to work? Who should I marry? What do you have for me? What kind of car should I buy? What kind of house should I live like? Me, 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 me. And I believe that the, the Bible teaches us to be asking questions that are centered around Christ. God, now that you have bought me, what do you want? What is your desire for my life? Where can I follow you? What is your move here? It's a different set of questions. The death of Jesus sets us free from our sinful nature and gives us a new nature, life in the Spirit. The first part of that. The second part of that is the death of Jesus sets us free from the desires and thoughts of the world. So if you look at that second part of that little verse there, it says that, that we are set, in verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time, people that are in the world, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. We are programmed, right, by our sinful nature to, to follow its thoughts and its desires. And that's manifested in the world around us all the time. And I think it comes in two categories. One, it comes in comparison. We are inclined to live lives of constant comparison. We look at the people around us and we say, I am comparing my life to yours. I look at how you look. I look at the images that are thrown in front of me on TV and in, in magazines. And I look in the mirror and I compare myself to what I see. We do it in our business life, in our work life. We look at other people and the successes they've had and we compare ourselves. We are constantly called to live lives of 
comparison, right? And social media fuels this, right? Because it's, it's given us the ability to throw up a snapshot, a false kind of picture of life based on what we want people to see about us. So we open up Facebook or Instagram or whatever, we look at it and we say, my goodness, I want that. I mean, we see people make these posts saying, oh, please pray for us. We're headed to Lowe's to pick out wallpaper for our fifth bedroom. And you're like, oh, I want that. Or, oh, you know, hey, date night with the hubby, drinks and elk steaks on top of the Devon Tower. We got here by private helicopter. And you're like, oh, I want, I want elk steaks in a helicopter, you know. And we look at them and we're like, hey, I feel like they're at Disney World like every week. Like they live there, you know. And we look at these snapshots and it's this guy that we used to date. And he's with his gorgeous girlfriend. And we're going, I want that. Two. You know, and we look at these things because we desire, we compare our lives. And then we look and we're sitting with our cat on Saturday night going, yeah, woo. <laughs> Post a picture of, you know, pretend like I'm, you know, here's the deal is that the reality is we're comparing our lives all the time. It's the sinful part of the world that says I have to compare myself. The problem, of course, is that the definition is broken. The definition is broken. What we're comparing ourselves to is a lie. It's not true. Paul talks about in Romans 12 when he says, he says, listen, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Let be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what comes, right? When we, when we understand the true death of Christ and what he did for me, I can renew my mind because that definition is broken. So we live in this constant state of comparison, and the death of Jesus frees us from that need. I don't need to compare myself to a lie. But the second part of that is conformity. So the second part of that sort of chasing of the world is that I live in this constant state of comparison, but I also live in a constant desire to conform. I want that. Not only do I compare my life about that, but there's a part of me that deeply wants that and wants to conform to the standard that the world has put out there. The kind of vacations and lives and things that people have or the living standard that they have. I want to conform to that. I want to adjust my life to meet those definitions. Because that's what everybody else is doing. And that's the part of us that is not just laughing at the posts about what everybody else does, but the part of us that engage in it. We want people to think things about our life and think that we have it a little bit all together. And so we post things about us, social media. We do it in here all the time. We wear our masks. We show up. I talk about this all the time. We walk into church holding hands with the very same person we fought with the whole way here. We don't want anybody to know that, right? It's why nobody can have visitors at their house longer than like three days. Because nobody wants to see what really happened, Right? <laughs> Hey, time to go, you know. The reality is that we live in this, and we, pro- we kind of promote it because we want people to think we're something that we're not because we're using a broken definition, right? This is what struck Israel way back in the day when God had sort of set Israel up as his, his covenant people, his nation. He says, I am going to be your king. And God established a group of judges that they would make decisions, godly people that would make decisions for the country, but that God would be their king. Well, the people of Israel revolted, and they said, we want to be, this is a direct quote, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king like them. We don't want you to be our king. We want a king like all the other nations because they are following their kings, and their kings lead them into battle, and they have great things, and we want that. And God said this to Israel. He said, but I am your king. And they fought him. They said, no, we want what the world says. And God gave them over to that, gave them the first King Saul, and it kind of began a, a, a kind of an up and down roller coaster of um, 
kind of a disaster for Israel as God would redeem them and they would run away and then God would redeem them and they would run away, et cetera, et cetera. But it all came because I wanted to conform to the definition that the world said was right. We want a king. We don't want you, God. This is what we do. We say, God, I know you tell me that you're enough for me, but I don't want that nor believe that. I want this because that makes me feel better. Because if I have this house, this car, this wife, this thing, this life, then at least in the eyes of this world, I have got it together. So I hear you tell me that you will take care of me, and I hear you tell me that you are enough, but basically I'm looking at you saying, it's not enough for me. Because I want this, and I compare my life to it, and I conform to it. And it's a lie. The death of Jesus sets us free from the ways of the world. Most of us, when we've surrendered our life to Christ, are in this constant battle with God. We really realize what Jesus did for us, that we no longer belong to us, that we have been made new creations, and with that, our minds have been transformed, and that we don't have to become slave to a definition that's a lie. But instead, we can say, God, my value, my worth, who I am is in you. You are the source of all of my joy, and my life is yours. Do with me what you will. Everything changes. And I promise this, it's the most liberating thing in the world. If you could ever really stand there, it's liberating. So the death of Jesus sets us free from the ways of the world. Look at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised you up with Christ and seated you with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show us incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness of Christ. All that to say, the death of Jesus sets you free from sin and death. Now this is the one that we sort of talked about over the past four weeks. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But the idea is this. The death of Jesus sets us free from death. And here's what I want you to understand. We've talked about this before. In our sinful state... We are absolutely 100% dead. We are not sick. We are not dying. We are not in need of Band-Aids spiritually, just a couple of fixes and it all be together. The Bible tells us clearly, and in this passage, that we were dead in our transgressions and sin. Dead. Done. Hopeless. But the death of Jesus, right, purchases us through a substitutionary death, purchases us and gives us life. The death of Jesus sets us free from death. Which is a remarkable thing if you really think about how God moves and works. That, that he sent his son to die so that we no longer would, spiritually. That we have been bought with a price and we have been set free. That the death of Jesus purchases us out of death. So we've got, all the other messages kind of explain that. But these are the first two truths, okay? The death of Jesus sets us free from the world. And the death of Jesus sets us free from sin and death. Like, there is nothing you could do. You couldn't purchase yourself out of it. We talked about it week one. You were absolutely powerless. No bargaining with God. No kind of coming up with this and I'll do that and you do these things and then we'll all be here. But it was just, God, I am absolutely dead and there's nothing I can do. And God, through his infinite, amazing grace, through his son Jesus, purchases us out of death. So the death of Jesus separates us or, or purchases us out of sin and death. And the one I want to spend our last time on this morning is this. The death of Jesus sets us free from the performance-minded lie. All right, listen to this, verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. As I look at my own life, and as I look at the lives of other Christians, we, we most of us, have bought into this performance-minded lie that basically looks at God and says, I believe you died for me, 
but I also believe that if I do a certain amount of things, I will find your blessing and favor. So I'm not going to argue with the fact that Jesus was the sort of key to my salvation. But if I live my life correctly enough or make a few less mistakes or make a few better choices, then you will bless me and I will find favor in you. So that my life, although I say is driven by God's move alone, through salvation through Christ, is really driven by my ability to do things. And that if I just make an effort, if I just put forth the best I can, God will somehow see me and say, you know what, Trev, you are trying. And I appreciate the, the try. So that, I'm going to go ahead and give you credit for that. That's what we believe. Now, we don't say that out loud because it sounds ridiculous. But we look at we bargain with God all the time. God, listen, if you will just free me from this, I will, I will get back in my Bible. I will pray more. I will show up at church. I will do these things. And sometimes it's the reverse. God, maybe if I do this, God will lift this from me. Maybe if I, if I live a little bit more correctly, God will give me a, a better this or a better relationship or God will do this. If I just work for a little bit of it, God then will see my movement and he will meet me halfway. And it is an absolute and complete lie. If by any of our own movement warrants any of God's affection, grace ceases to be grace. It is not there. Grace is not grace if by any means of our own, God gives it to us. So if I work for it, earn it, move towards it, do any of it, and God then, because of that, responds to it, grace ceases to be grace. It becomes driven by what I do. The Bible is completely clear. You were dead in your sin through God's incredible, extravagant, amazing love for you. What you could not do on your own, God did for you. It means that God will not love you any more or any less today than he already has in Christ. You cannot do anything to make God love you more. But the problem with us is this is how our earthly relationships are geared. So we transpose it onto our relationship with the Lord. This is our earthly relationships, right? We can make people love us more by how we treat them, how we act, what we do. So we transpose that onto God saying, God, if I just give you a little better me, then I'm going to get a little more favor out of you. And it's a lie. Scripture is incredibly clear that the death of Jesus sets us free. All, that Christ, all of Christ's love was poured out on the cross. There is no more, there is no less. It is infinite and it is complete. You can't earn it. Nothing you can do. Now there is nothing more liberating in the world than finally realizing that God's blessing and favor is not a result of what you do. That his incredible, complete, and infinite love was poured out on the cross and it is done. All we're called to do is in faith step into what he has already done for us. Now I find this incredibly freeing, right? Because that performance-minded lie is what we live with in our workplaces, it's what we live with in our relationships, and what we live with in our homes. Sadly, it's just true. But it's liberating when you realize it's not what you have to do with God. That God is not going to love me more today if I make a few less mistakes. And God is not going to love me less when I screw up. It doesn't mean that God doesn't hate my sin and hate the things that I do. But what it does mean is that God won't love me more or less. So the quick definition of grace is this, that grace is God's sort of undeserved favor and unmerited uh, love. I mean, basically undeserved, we didn't do anything to deserve it, and unmerited meaning we didn't earn it. So the idea of grace is absolutely 100% nothing we can do. It is based 100% on God's extravagant, amazing, completed love through Christ, right? Nothing we can do about it, and there was nothing we can ever do to earn it. The death of Jesus sets you free from the lie that for decades, I think most of us have been enslaved to by trying to perform for God. Because most of us have tried to perform for affection of other people. We want their approval, so we perform for them. We are raised in households like this. I want my dad to be proud of me. 
I want my mom to love me, so what do I have to do? I have to demonstrate to them good behavior and good things. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong in your house. I'm just saying that's how we live. And if I don't, they are disappointed in me. And if I do right, then they give me more favor. They give me more blessing. They show me more love. It's how we live. Same thing in our workplaces. But the crazy, amazing thing about God is that's not how God works. When we finally understand that, it is the most liberating thing in the world, the most freeing understanding in the world to realize that grace is free and has been completely lavished out through the cross. And all we are called to do is receive it, just surrender to its truth. Then, all right, then we live lives that desire to please God as a response to what Jesus did, not to earn it. So now my desire to live according to, to the scripture to please God, to honor him, is not to earn something so that God will say, hey, good try, here's a blessing, or here's an extra bonus, or here's a whatever. But that we live that way because of what God has done. It becomes a response and not something to get. It's liberating when my life or our lives begin to live for the Lord for this pure joy of what he's done for us, and not because out of it we're going to end up with something else. The prosperity gospel is a lie. The lie that says that if you just live correctly, God will bless you. It's a lie. It's not grace. You cannot live correctly. You're a disaster. God has lavished his love on you and he's set you free. And our lives living in response to that, right, are only uh, because of what he has already done for us. Lastly, I'll wrap everything up with this. Paul ends with this incredible promise. Verse 10. Listen to this promise, he says. Verse 10. He says, um, if I'm in the right book here, Philippians, no, excuse me, First 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Here's the promise. You are God's workmanship. You know that Greek word that's used for workmanship is actually the words that are used for a work of art. You are God's work of art. You are his workmanship. He made you. Psalm 139 puts it this way. God knit you together in your mother's womb. Right? While you were still unformed. God created you and he made you. You are his masterpiece, his workmanship. Right? Most of us don't see our lives that way. We've been told all kinds of other things. Some of us have been told we're accidents, we're mistakes, we're failures, we're whatever it is. We've lived into those things. But what God tells us that we are his workmanship. This is what Paul's saying. Look, you are God's created masterpiece. You are his workmanship. As flawed as you may think you are, God knit you together. You are his. And he bought you with a price and he loves you. So the first part of that promise is you are God's workmanship, his work of art. And the second part is God has a plan for your life. So you are God's workmanship created, created in Christ. Remember, because you're a new creation. Created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you. Meaning God has a plan for you. God has recreated you. He has regenerated you through the Holy Spirit. He has made you new. 2 Corinthians 5, we talked about it last week. He has made you a new creation. And he has things in this world that he wants you to do and he is going to use you for. And those have been created far in advance. God has a plan for you. A lot of us sit here spinning our wheels going, what is my, I mean, really, what am I doing here? I feel like I'm taking up space on this planet. God, have you forgotten me? We really live with those thoughts, and they're real. But when we understand that the death of Jesus frees us, and there's a promise attached to it that says that we were created as God's workmanship, and that he has a plan for our lives, because I'm no longer mine, I'm his. 
The quest becomes, God, how do I live for you? Not to earn anything, not to get some kind of blessing, but if you've created something for me in advance to do, and you call me your workmanship, I want to live into that. So God, I want to follow you as you show me where you're taking me and where you're leading. It's a completely different set of questions. The death of Jesus frees us, right, from the ways of the world, from sinful gratification, from the way of the world that says live in comparison and conformity. It frees us from sin and death. The death of Jesus purchases us out of death. And it frees us, completely and totally frees us from the performance-minded lie because we are God's workmanship and he has already created movements for us to be a part of. Our response becomes, God, show me where you're moving. I want to be there. Five truths about the death of Jesus. There's probably a billion more, but these were the five that we looked at. Death of Jesus was for the enemies of God, which we all were. He died on our behalf, demonstrated what love looks like, defines love, reconciles us to God, and sets us free. All this to prepare us for what takes place next Sunday. Not only the single, single greatest event in all of human history, but Jesus says, I am the resurrection, so we celebrate the single greatest person in all of history. The resurrection is a person, and he's alive, and all this leads us there. So as you come and worship on Easter, or as you go somewhere, or wherever it is that you're doing, carry these truths with you, with you because they will transform the way you think about Easter. Let's pray. God, we pray.